Again, a blessed Sabbath to everyone, all over, wherever you are. May you have a blessed Sabbath today. We'd like to thank Brother Ruben Capistrano for his ministry towards us and towards everyone. He loves to glorify God, he told me, and he is doing this faithfully. May God multiply your talents. God bless you all. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity. Time is shrinking, opportunity is disappearing, but we still have time on hand to continue understanding the main issues that we are facing right now, and that it is central to the test that God will minister, administer to everyone. It has to do with our conscience. Help us to keep our conscience free from defects and free from impurity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we continue our study and understanding, really, of this issue of religious liberty. And the last one we uh, we were covering was the issue of religious liberty as the foundation, one of the two foundations upon which the United States was built upon to become the great nation that it is. And so this time we will consider, um, you know, quotes from the Spirit of Prophecy. And you will find that these quotes that I'm going to share with you are just found within, not in excess, but found within the confines of the scriptural foundation evidences that we have already covered, Daniel, Revelation, and the Gospels. So first thing I'd like to share with you is found in what is called Three Selected Messages, page 383 or 386. And this has to do with America. This land, America, has been the home of the oppressed, the witness for liberty of conscience, and the great center of scriptural light. America, where the greatest light from heaven has been shining upon the people, can become the place of greatest peril and darkness because the people do not continue to practice the truth and to walk in the light of this advancing truth. So there is warning we should give heed to, and it's also given in the book of Revelation, especially Revelation 13. Now, it, it, this is from the manuscript of Riddle, Mind, Character, and Personality. And I asked the question of myself and found the answer also provided here. What is, you know, when you read Matthew 6.22? I didn't understand this quite until I got to this quotation. Matthew 6.22, Jesus said... The light of the body is the eye. Now watch that phrase. You'll ask yourself, what is that? The light of the body is the eye, Jesus said. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Oh, deep, isn't it? But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that in thee is darkness. How great is that darkness. Matthew 6, 22. 
Wow. So we ask the question now, what is this light of the body or the eye? Well, here's letter 43, 1904, to answer that question. These words have a first and second sense, a literal and a figurative meaning. They are full of truth in regard to the bodily eye with which we see eternal objects, and they are true also to the spiritual eye, the conscience, with which we see and estimate evil. So that if the eye of the soul, the conscience, is perfectly healthy, the soul will be taught right. Now that sets us now on our journey and understanding with that background that we finally understand what Jesus meant by the light of the body is the eye. Conscience is the eye of the soul. So remember this first and secondary sense application of this passage, a literal and a figurative meaning that the bodily eye or the physical eye is what we see eternal objects as we study God's word. They're also true of the spiritual eye, which is the conscience. Now we are told to exalt conscience to its rightful place of authority. And this is coming from, I think, uh, yeah, the Southern Watchman, article March 1, 1904 by Ellen White. And she writes, God has given more than a mere animal life. He loved us, he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall have, shall not perish but have everlasting life, John 3.16. So he expects those for whom he has made so great a sacrifice to show their appreciation for his love by following the example that Christ has set before them. What is it? Living lives that are in harmony with his will. He expects them to respond to the love he has expressed for them by denying self for the good of others. He expects them to use the powers of the mind and the body in his service. And then he has given them a conscience. And he forbids that this gift, oh, here's a new thing now, this gift of conscience be in any way misused. It is rather to be exalted to the place of authority to which he has assigned it. End of quote. And from manuscript 127, 1897, she says that a conscience void of offense towards God and man is a wonderful acquirement. Now we have two components here. It is a gift of God, but it is also acquired. It is a faculty, therefore. A warning that rejecting this conscience is a fearful danger. Letter 162, 1903, day by day, men and women are deciding the eternal destiny. I have been shown that many are in great danger. When a man or a woman will do or say anything to gain his end, 
nothing but the power of God can save him. His character needs to be transformed before he can have a good conscience. Character needs to be transformed before we can have a good conscience, void of offense towards God and man. Self must die, and Christ must, should take and must take the possession of the soul temple. When, by rejecting the light that God has given them, men abuse and trample upon that conscience, they are in fearful danger. Their future eternal welfare is imperiled. End of quote. Now, who attempts to drown conscience? Well, we know, Satan, of course. And that's what we're going to read. Manuscript 161, 1897, Satan uses his influence to drown the voice of God and the voice of conscience, and the world acts as in under his control. Men have chosen him as their leader. They stand under his banner. They will not come to Christ that they might have life. That was his invitations. Now, these are some of Satan's influence that drown the voice of God and conscience. Infatuation with schemes for pleasure and amusement, which is all over us. They are striving for that which will perish with the using. So Satan uses this. He uses the schemes for pleasure and amusement, and men become infatuated. And what happens? It drowns their conscience. Another thing: one wrong step changes a life. And I always kind of quote this old Chinese proverb: that the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. And it plays along with this. The removal of one safeguard from the conscience, the failure to do the very thing that the Lord has marked out in his word, one step in the path of wrong principle often leads to an entire change of life and action. We are safe only in following where Christ leads the way. The path will grow brighter, clearer, and brighter unto the perfect day. So, what happens to a conscience that is violated? It becomes weakened progressively. A conscience once violated is greatly weakened. It needs the strength of constant watchfulness and unceasing prayer. We need to emphasize that. The strength of the conscience is constant watchfulness and constant prayer. This is what Jesus meant when he warned his disciples. In Matthew 24, 41, he said to his disciples, Watch and pray that you enter not into the temptation, for the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You've heard about that. Now you understand the context in which this was written and admonished the disciples of. The violated conscience, what happens to it? It becomes unreliable. Manuscript 27, 1900. He who after hearing the truth turns away from it because to accept it would retard his success in business lines, turns from God and light. 
He sells his soul in a very cheap market. His conscience will ever be unreliable. He has made a bargain with Satan, violating his conscience, which, if kept pure and upright, would have been of more value to him than the whole world. He who refuses light partakes of the fruit of disobedience, as did Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You know, Jesus taught his disciples. And we have quoted this many times. If any man will follow me, he says, let him take up his cross daily of self-denial and follow me. In Mark 8, 36 and 37, Jesus said, For what will it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul by bargaining with Satan, the God of this world? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This loss of conscious integrity will also paralyze energies. Letter 14, 18, 85, when you lose your conscious integrity, your soul becomes a battlefield for Satan, and you will have doubts and fears enough to paralyze your energies and drive you to discouragement. When the favor of God was gone, that sounds like grace, okay? You know that some of you have tried to supply that place and seek compensation for the loss of the Holy Spirit's witness that you are a child of God? By what means? In worldly excitement and in the society or companionship of worldlings. Choose your friends wisely. As the old saying says, tell me who your friends are and I will tell you who you are. That's a popular proverb. Uh, it's also in Deuteronomy 13, verse 6 and 8. Moses wrote, If thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is thine own soul, or bosom friend, which taketh closer than the brother, entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers. Verse 8 says, Thou shalt not consent to go after him nor hearken unto him, neither shall you, your eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him. They're not supposed to hide him. Psalms 41, 9 says, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, have lifted up his heel against me. James 4, verse 4. Strong words, nevertheless. Salvationary, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. You better read that for yourself, James 4, verse 4. This is the spiritual adultery resulting from a misused, abused, violated, dulled, and eventually a seared conscience. And what is meant by being a friend of the world? A good question to ask. The Bible gives us an answer. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. So if you encounter this in your reading and somebody asks you, show them where it's found, what it means to be a friend of the world in the context of James 4, verse 4. John answers us in 
in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, love not the world, see that? Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, and the things of the world, of course, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and I would put that in contrast, in all that is in God's word, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And what happens? The world passeth away, and the lust thereof, meaning for all the things that are in the world, they pass away. First John 2, 15 to 17. You know, this is a, a, a perfect situation to understand the either-or situation. It is either-or. Either the love of the Father or the love of the world. There's nothing whatsoever in common between the two. They are, in fact, at enmity against each other. There's no room or space exists for any justification or that terrible word compromise. Jesus never compromised the truth for the sake of convenience, safety, or the applause of men. Mortal men does that. The immortal God never. What happens to a violated conscience? Oh, it doesn't recede. It doesn't go away. It becomes something else. Letter 88, 1896 says, A violin, a conscience violated becomes a tyrant over other consciences. You see that? This is terrible. A violated conscience becomes a tyrant over other consciences. Now, do you know why there are tyrants and dictators, people controlling others? They have basically, the problem is their conscience. It is a violated conscience. The same principle applies to deception. He who becomes deceived eventually becomes a deceiver himself of others. So, I know um, this is what most people find very entertaining, very soothing, especially in times of distress and like now. You go to the stores, people are picking up, buying alcohol by, you know, it's a, it's a windfall profit for the wine and alcohol makers. But what does the Bible say? Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And so we find in manuscript 130, 1380-99, referring to this very passage in Proverbs 21, what happens in other passages? The drunkard sells his reason for a cup of poison. Satan takes control of his reason, his affections, and his conscience. Diet as well affects the conscience. It's from Councils and Diet, uh, page 243. Gross and stimulating food fevers the blood, excites the nervous system, and too often dulls the moral perceptions so that reason and conscience are overborne by sensual impulses. Do we understand that? Drink and food. 
What about the total health concept in relation to the conscience? This is from Councils on Health 566. Health that is of the body and the mind and the spirit is an inestimable blessing and one which is more closely related to conscience and religion than many ever realize. It has a great deal to do with one's capability. And here's now for pastors, ministers, priests, whatever. Every minister who should feel that as he would be a, a faithful guardian of the flock, he must preserve all his powers in condition for the best possible service. That is, of course, service to God and man. Now, here's something that we should carefully consider. This comes from a very potent, um, you know, when you want to skip service for a good reason, something's going to do it for you. They're called conscientious objectors. Okay? It's based on conscience, not convenience. However, that's not the end all be all because it is entirely possible to be conscientiously wrong at the same time. Okay? So here is, I'm going to share this with you. It's letter 41889. The idea is entertained by many that a man may practice anything that he conscientiously believes to be right. But the big question is, has the man a well-instructed, good conscience? Or is it biased and warped by his own preconceived opinions? Conscience is not to take the place of a thus saith the Lord. It still it is written, has been, should, and always will be. Not what you feel, not what you're convinced, not what your conscience actually says, ultimately. The conscience is not to take the place of the thus saith the Lord. Consciences do not all harmonize and are not all inspired alike. There are levels. Some consciences are dead, seared as with a hot iron, Men may, be, men may be conscientiously wrong as well as conscientiously right. Apostle Paul, you know, he honestly and sincerely did not believe in Jesus of Nazareth. No, he didn't. In fact, he hunted down the Christians from city to city. He himself made that confession in his letters and epistles, verily believing that he was doing service to God until his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. You know, let me make this confession. There was a time before finding and being enlightened by this present truth, way back, that I sincerely believed and often repeated these lines to others or as a justification for doing or saying certain things that actually bothered me to begin with. And these lines I read because I used to, <laughs> you know, look at the cartoons way back. 
Um, and it was the character Peanuts. You've heard about Peanuts, authored by Charles Schultz. And this line stuck with me. It says, it, it does not matter what you believe in so long as you are sincere. Then much later on in life, I read a passage that says, sincerity does not change a lie into a truth. Oh, how ashamed I was of myself to have been so easily deceived and duped for want of Bible knowledge and dearth or spiritual discernment. As Benjamin Franklin said, it is easier to deceive a person than for him to believe that he is actually deceived. So with that, I'd like to make this appeal once more to everyone. If there is one thing that should treasure, protect from being desecrated, it is the citadel of conscience. It is the throne of wisdom and safety. It is where the Holy Spirit speaks to us in a still small voice. I join you and join with me. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are being patient with us. We are slow learners, hard of heart, slow of hearing. But please continue to labor with us. And with that mysterious patience and long suffering, you will continue to work in us until you find that your image can be reproduced in us and people will know that Christ, we had been with Christ, just like the witness of the moral heroes of the Bible. Bless us today. Continue to be merciful to us. May God bless all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.